Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the first chapter of Murder at the Minger, a Sydney Lockhart mystery by Kathleen Koshka, and is read by local actor Ariel Lynn. Murder at the Minger was published in June of 2022. If you'd like to help support this podcast, listen for details in the closing of this episode on how to become a patron and get some fun perks. I detest people who do bad things. Always have, always will. My name is Sydney Lockhart, and it's taken me 29 years to admit that finer point of my persona, and almost another year to act upon it. At least that's what I told myself a few days ago, when I arrived at the Alamo in San Antonio for only the second time in my life. I first visited the old mission on our St. Mary's High School senior class trip. I got as far as the front door before Sister Bonaparte Marie pulled me by the arm and ordered me back to the school bus. At 5.10, I towered over her. But no one... I mean no one, messed with her. Boney, as I nicknamed her, was the furthest thing from what her moniker suggested, at four and a half feet tall and almost as wide. She reminded me of a pint-sized boulder. While waiting for the tour guide to usher in our class, Lisa Ann Billings cold-cocked a pigeon with her apple core. Before I could talk myself out of it, I cold-cocked Lisa Ann. For the next hour, I sat alone on the bus, except for the pigeon, which I had rescued and held in my lap until it regained consciousness. Once it began to flutter, I fed it the crumbs from my sandwich and then let it go. I spent the rest of my incarceration praying Lisa Ann would be seized by one of the ghosts that purportedly haunted the mission. I also prayed the pigeon would fly over and baptize Lisa Ann on her way out of the Alamo. Neither event happened. As my classmates piled onto the bus, Boney said she hoped I'd spend my time thinking about my behavior and praying. I assured her I had. These thoughts washed over me as I stood in front of the Alamo for the second time. The year is 1953, more than a century after General Santa Ana slaughtered enough Texans to provide the state with heroes galore. I was about to enter the Alamo again, but what stopped me this time had nothing to do with nuns and pigeons. I'd been following a young woman named Nora. She'd left the Minger Hotel in the early morning, where she and her boyfriend, Johnny Pine, and I had spent a wild night boozing and fighting. Actually, they did the boozing and fighting. I was in the next room. A vicarious participant in their party... Most hotel guests would have called the front desk and complained, but I was grateful for the opportunity to eavesdrop. After my brawling neighbors shut their balcony window, muffling their voices, I was relegated to spend the night with my ear on a juice glass pressed against our adjoining wall. I often find myself in hotels because of the type of work I do. It's not what you think. While growing up in Houston and attending Catholic schools, I envisioned myself a future career woman. The domestic life, marriage, children, housekeeping, seemed as foreign to me as raising camels in Timbuktu. 
But my career interests vacillated from doctor to microbiologist to ballerina to hula dancer to automobile mechanic. And for a moment, a very brief moment, I considered becoming a nun. My grandfather, Popo, had a huge influence in my life. When I mentioned the nun idea, <laughs> he almost choked. I think that was the only time in my life I shocked him. His response was, Forget about it. Thankfully, I did. Popo had an unquenchable fascination with the wonders of life, and it steered me toward more practical directions. He taught me to appreciate the creatures that washed ashore after high tide, the majesty of constellations as they traveled across the sky, and flocks of birds that descended on the beach after fleeing an offshore storm. He even took me on my first Christmas bird count. But his lessons also included practical stuff all women should know. While other kids' grandfathers took them to movies or read to them, Popo taught me how to pick locks and hotwire cars. He told me a girl had to always be prepared. Upon hearing of my decision to become a science teacher, he was elated. Unfortunately, while attempting to steer some ruthless characters in the right direction, Popo was murdered. I was the one who discovered his body. I was eleven. And although I went on to teach science, my heart was never in it. A little more than a year ago, I quit the classroom and became a reporter. It was a good fit. Still is. But the nature of my work has taken a more secretive, somewhat sinister course. The reason for my second career change had to do with two men. Popo and P.I. Ralph Dixon. Purely by accident, Dixon and I solved several murder cases together. One of those cases led to discovering my grandfather's killer. Eighteen years later. It was then I realized my talent for detective work and my perverse satisfaction in seeing bad guys pay for their sins. Although he might not have approved of my current occupation, Popo would have loved my motives. Yesterday, I'd followed Johnny Pine from a hotel in Austin to the Minger Hotel here in San Antonio. I was assigned to find out what the shady guy was up to. Before arriving at the Minger, he made a stop at a boarding house near the center of town. He tooted the horn, and a young, petite brunette, whom I came to know was Nora, stepped out, lugging a suitcase. Pine stayed put behind the wheel and honked again. The woman shot him a death glare and stood her ground. "'Don't play games with me, Nora! Get your ass in the car!' Pine shouted loud enough for me to hear a block away. Nora obliged, but left her suitcase on the porch. Pine finally relented and tossed her belongings into the back seat. Not only was Johnny Pine a lazy louse, but he was also a notorious bookie. Rumor had it he ran operations from Florida to Texas. I'd been on his trail for less than three hours, and I already detested the guy. At least he'd chosen one of the classiest hotels in which to stay. 
The Minger Hotel is the oldest continuously operating hotel west of the Mississippi. In 1859, when businessman William Minger built the hotel across from the Alamo, 23 years after its fall, Texans immediately approved of Minger's location choice. Whether it was out of homage to the heroes of the fallen mission, or the failed site of Texans' first brewery located nearby, the new hotel would stand on sacred ground, for Texans loved their heroes and their brew. Pine, hair and mustache slicked with pomade, chasséed into the hotel empty-handed, leaving Nora to follow with the luggage. He walked up to the front desk, and without bothering to fill out a registration card, he demanded the key to room 330 in the West Wing. Would you like help with your bags? The desk clerk asked. Nah, we can get them, Pine said. He grabbed his one small bag and headed for the elevator. Nora stood stationary, arms akimbo. So, gentlemen, you are! Pine and Nora worked out the luggage issue while waiting for the elevator. I asked the desk clerk for a room on the third floor in the West Wing. We only have two rooms in that wing. You're in luck. One is still available. But it's a suite. I saw dollar signs followed by numbers that made me tremble. Until I remembered I could claim the room charge as a business expense. I'll take it, I said. He looked over the counter. Do you have any luggage you'd like us to bring up? Thank you, but it's in my car. I'll take care of it myself. I turned the corner toward the west wing in time to see Pine and Nora, lip-locked as they stumbled inside and slammed the door. I entered room 328, expecting to see the usual bed, nightstand, and bureau. What I found was a sitting room where Victorian met French Rococo, the overstuffed and studded Victorian sofa, upholstered in the oddest shade of tarnished copper, was framed by two pink and ivory fringed lampshades, covering porcelain figurines of dancing women. Heavy cerulean-colored velour drapes held open by sateen sashes hung from the window frames. The incongruous color scheme and mismatched furniture worked. The bedroom exploded with more of the same, on the bedside table was an eye mask, which I'd surely need to prevent Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette nightmares. I studied the sitting room layout and determined which wall I shared with my randy neighbors. Then I moved a small, fragile desk and chair away from the adjoining wall for my eavesdropping convenience. I hoped to discover the details of Mr. Pine's exploits in the Alamo City and the part Nora played. Last night's effort robbed me of a night's sleep. Nora carped all night about Johnny's broken promises. To take her dancing. To take her to a fancy restaurant. To order a better brand of bourbon. Johnny's response to Nora's nagging had been nothing more than Shut your trap! And Pour me another drink! A while later, I heard Pine remonstrate that if Nora spent another minute in the bathtub... Her skin would shrivel up like an old woman's. The noise ceased around five o'clock, and the three of us finally got to sleep. I rose early, regardless of my late night, not expecting my neighbors to be awake before noon, 
I headed down to the hotel restaurant to enjoy a leisurely breakfast. Halfway through the Times crossword and savoring my second cup of coffee, I looked up in time to see Nora emerge from the elevator. On the way out the front door, she said hello to Mr. Kingsley behind the front desk. He blushed. My choice was to stay put and wait for Pine to wake up or skip my breakfast and follow Nora. I grabbed a strip of bacon, threw a couple bucks on the table, and left. Nora crossed the street to the Alamo. She paused outside the mission door and lit up, checking her watch every few seconds. With an impatient toss, her cigarette landed in a small pool of water left by last night's mild rain. She then rushed to the street and hopped into a taxi. I followed in another yellow cab. Since I was a stranger to San Antonio, as soon as we left the central downtown area, I was clueless as to where Nora was going. Soon we were cruising through a seedy neighborhood. Her taxi pulled up in front of Fat Eddie's liquor store on Matamorose Street, and Nora got out and walked in. The driver stayed put. I knew she hadn't come this far to replace their depleted liquor supply, since there was a liquor store across the street from the hotel. I instructed the cabbie to park in the next block and wait. Meter's going to run, lady. Sure, that's fine. Moments later, Nora rushed out, carrying a brown paper parcel tied with twine about the size of a shoebox. She hopped back into her cab, and it took off in a flash. I told the driver to follow. Nora's driver ran several red lights. After the fourth one, my driver refused to follow, which was probably a wise idea, since Nora would surely realize someone was tailing her. There's an extra five in it for you if you find out where that taxi went, I told the cabbie. His cab number is 402. Yeah, yeah, Chucky Dumas's cab. Take me to the Minger. I'll be there until at least tomorrow. If I get the information in the next hour, I'll throw in another five. You got it, lady. Go to the front desk and ask for Sidney Lockhart. That's you? Yeah, Sidney with a Y. I get so tired of people thinking Sidney is a man's name. Maybe I should go by my middle name, Jean. But then Jean, if spelled differently, is a man's name too. My mother, Mary Lou Lockhart, seemed perfectly normal to most people. Wife, mother, a bit over the top. She dabbled in community theater, goes to church and keeps a clean house. As far as I was concerned... I believe she had a hidden agenda. I'd catch her looking at me in confusion, as if she'd left the hospital with the wrong baby, and if I didn't behave, she'd return me. Then she'd look over at my dad and sadly shake her head. Her plan to return me just wouldn't fly. In appearance, as well as demeanor, I was obviously his daughter. And because of that... I always felt she was out to get me. I wondered if naming me Sidney Jean was part of the plan. This reading of Murder at the Minger was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Hamm. You can learn more about the author on her website, KathleenKoshka.com. If you'd like to help us be able to continue to bring you more mystery fun, 
check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Even a dollar a month can make a difference and we could really use your support. Watch for even more great perks coming soon for our patrons. We also have some cool merchandise available on Redbubble. Check the show notes for the link and for the links to our websites and social media. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode and subscribe to our podcast newsletter for bonus content. And if you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it as this helps make us easier for others to find. And be sure to tell your friends. Until next time, this is your announcer, wishing you a life full of mystery. Mystery.